It is the light show which turned on the lights, so to speak, for many non-believers, doubters, or people flat out in the dark about UFOs. On March 13, 1997, while thousands of people were looking skyward purposely for a glimpse of the Hale-Bopp comet, they also caught a glimpse of these either these V or Delta or boomerang-shaped orbs. One of those skeptics was Dr. Lynn Kitai. I am a healthy skeptic, but I saw this up close and personal and captured 35 millimeter photographs of it. Not content with the government claim that the lights were military flares, she began a seven-year journey to document everything she could find out about those lights. What I did end up with after keeping an intricate journal for seven years with 750 pages of such compelling, incredible data. That journal eventually became this book, which led to a documentary, which will be shown this coming Sunday at Scottsdale Harkins Shea Theater. All right, here we go. This is the second episode of Plainsight Podcast. I'm your host, Jacob. This episode is going to be about aliens. We're going to be talking about aliens and UFOs because... It's 2021, and apparently half of the population believes in UFOs, according to Google and the news, and they're the authority on everything, right? So I thought it'd be fun to... I I mean, come on, aliens, UFOs, we're talking about, um, you know, this is fun. See, this is fun. The last episode we did, Travis Scott, Astroworld, that was sad. And I wanted to do something more fun and more um, just a beat because that was sad, man. That was sad. So let's get into these fucking UFOs, man. Um, I'm just going to jump into it. I mean, we're going to talk about UFOs, um, substantial UFO cases. I'm going to get a little bit into kind of like where we're at now with the whole UFO situation, like, I'm going to talk a lot about kind of, you know, UFO cases that have happened in the past, right, and um, where we're at now with it, where we're at in terms of the government talking about aliens and UFOs, spoiler alert, they don't, Um, but we're going to get into that, so I figured I'd just start with... um, Substantial UFO cases, cases of UFOs that I personally find to be interesting and fun to kind of talk about. Um, And there's a lot of information on these cases on the internet. You can look into them for yourself if you really, if you're really into it. And I would encourage it. I mean, I'm just gonna give you like a pretty simple rundown of these things. These are like just pretty basic UFO cases, I think, that are important, historical in some way. I mean, you can just look into them easy for yourself and and find out about them. Now, I personally, I've always been interested in uh, UFOs, ghosts, aliens, all that sort of thing. You know, I grew up watching like Steven Spielberg and like Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I remember watching that as a kid and it having like a strong impact on my subconscious, you know, and then like E.T. and Star Wars. I was a nerd, right? So I was into all that spacey sci-fi shit and 
UFOs and aliens, that was kind of like how I got interested in all this sort of thing in the first place. Like, I have this podcast now in this moment in time, but, you know, in, in the beginning, in the very beginning, I mean, probably like, I was out of high school, but, you know, early 20s, I was looking into UFOs a lot, and then the election of 2016 happened, and believe it or not, there's actually quite a bit of UFO information tied into the whole 2016 election, um, and the WikiLeaks that dropped, if you remember those. But I've always been interested in this sort of thing. Um, I don't know how much you'll get out of this episode if you're like not <laughs> into it. Like, um, I personally don't really subscribe to the whole... I mean, me personally, I don't know what I believe. I, I don't know. I think something weird is going on in the skies that we can't really explain, but I am not quick to call them like extraterrestrial visitors you know i think it's more likely that 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 they're like interdimensional beings that like we don't fully understand really at all i mean we don't know what we're messing with here but um ufos are fun i don't want to get too much into like you know there's like we could get into the whole aliens or demons talk you know which and i said this on the first podcast i'm not religious i'm not christian um i mean that doesn't mean that i don't think that there are like evil demonic forces at work i mean and i i think it's inappropriate to blame things on demons and angels and i'm not you know i'm not all about that all the time but in terms of aliens I mean, you could make an argument that there's some demonic element to it. But we're not going to talk about that. We're not going to talk about that. We're going to just get talking about the fun stuff. So the first case I have here written down, and these are the cases, right? So the first one we're going to talk about is Roswell, New Mexico, 1947. I think most people know about this and have heard about this. I mean, I feel like I heard about it in school Um like, it might have been mentioned in a book or something, even, like, but I don't know, I can't remember exactly, that was a long time ago, right, but 1947, Roswell, New Mexico, in June or July of 1947, there was a rancher, and his name was William Brazel, and he found debris on his ranch on or around July 6th, and He reported this discovery to the local sheriff, who then contacted the Roswell Army Airfield. And they were, like, miles away. I don't think they were, like, super close to the actual crash site. But they came out the following morning, presumably July 7th. The Army Air Force detail inspected the debris on the Foster Ranch, and apparently they transported some or all of it back to Roswell. So the Air Force went in, and they picked up whatever was there, and they took it back. Now, on July 8th, the next day, the RAAF, the Roswell Army Airfield, uh, Public Information Officer Walter Hout issued a press release stating that personnel from the field's 509th Operations Group had recovered a, quote, flying disc, which had landed on a ranch near Roswell. 
General Roger M. Ramey of the 8th Air Force in Fort Worth, Texas, then ordered the air object to be flown to Fort Worth Army Airfield down in Texas, I guess. Um, now, at the base, Warrant Officer Irving Newton... Newton, I don't even know where all these fucking names are coming from. But he confirmed Ramey's preliminary opinion, identifying... Oh, okay, no, they came out... They did come out later, and they said that it was a weather balloon, right? So, I think that was the next day. The very next day, um, the Air Force came back out and said that it was a weather balloon, and it was a kite... Something along those lines. And then we never really hear about it ever again. They never really talked about it again. And it became kind of like myth, you know. Like in America, we've all heard of Roswell. I feel like anyone who's looked into UFOs or has even a slight interest in that sort of thing has looked into Roswell or heard of Roswell. I just figured I'd mention it. That's the very first one, right? Now, in 1952, there was another one in Washington, D.C. Um, and this one's kind of significant. I don't know too many details about it, but I'll read you a little bit of what I wrote here. Um, on July 19th, an air traffic controller spotted... This was in Washington, D.C., by the way. Um, an air traffic controller spotted seven objects on his radar, and no known aircraft were in the area, and the objects were not following any established flight paths. Um, he wrote, quote, We knew immediately that a very strange situation existed. Their movements were completely radical compared to those of ordinary aircraft, unquote. So that's a quote from um, one of the air controllers, right? So on July 26, so this is like a week later, I guess, um, 1952, a pilot and stewardess on National Airlines flight into Washington observed some lights above their plane. The press spokesman for Project Blue Book, and Project Blue Book, we're going to talk about that later, um, but Project Blue Book arrived at National Airport and due to security concerns, denied several reporters' requests to photograph the radar screen. So a guy from the government working for Project Blue Book went... And they saw it, and uh, they didn't let reporters take photographs of the radar screens. Um, and he he went into the radar center personnel that were tracking more objects. Now, the CIA would react to this 1952 wave of UFO reports. Oh, and there were also, I forgot to write this down, but there were also um, reports of lights over the... The, the Capitol, it was the Capitol or the White House or something crazy like that. And I think there's, I don't know if they're real pictures of it, but look into it. It's kind of weird. Like there was actually like literal fucking UFOs above the White House or the Capitol or something along those lines. Now, the CIA would react to the 1952 wave of UFO reports by, quote, forming a special study group within the Office of Scientific Intelligence an Office of Current Intelligence to review the situation. Edward Taus reported for that group and said that most UFO sightings could be easily explained. Nonetheless, he recommended that the agency continue monitoring the problem. So, yeah, Washington, D.C. There's lots of um, 
information about that one out there. Now, Project Blue Book, I will, I might as well just talk about it now since they, because it was started in 1952, that same year. Um, it was the systematic study of unidentified flying objects by the Air Force, the United States Air Force, um, until it was terminated on December 17th of 1969. So it went from 1952 to 1969. And the project was headquartered at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio. Now, Project Blue Book had two goals, namely to determine if the UFOs were a threat to national security and to scientifically analyze UFO-related data. That's what they kind of said the purpose of this was. Um, and thousands of UFO reports were collected through it, uh, analyzed, filed, and the Air Force basically gave this summary of its investigations. They said, that one... No UFO reported, investigated, and evaluated by the Air Force was ever an indication of threat to our national security. So basically saying that nothing was a threat that they investigated. And two, there was no evidence submitted or discovered by the Air Force that sightings categorized as unidentified represented technological developments and or principles beyond the range of modern scientific knowledge. And that there was no evidence indicating that sightings categorized as unidentified were extraterrestrial vehicles. So basically they said, it's not a threat to national security. We didn't find anything weird. The range of scientific knowledge was not outside of our capabilities. And they didn't find anything that led them to believe that they were extraterrestrial vehicles like flying through the sky. So... Now, by the time Project Blue Book ended, it had collected 12,618 UFO reports and concluded that most of them were misidentifications of natural phenomena, uh, so like clouds, stars, or conventional aircraft. Now, according to the National Reconnaissance Office, a number of the reports could be explained by flights of the formerly secret reconnaissance planes, or reconnaissance planes, U-2 and A-12, which it's funny they mentioned those. We're actually, I have a podcast episode planned um, to where we're going to talk about like Lockheed Martin and directed energy weapons and stealth aircraft that they have that is kind of sus and it's almost like they're putting that sort of technology like right in our fucking face, but that's probably going to be the next episode but anyways um 701 reports of the 12,000 were classified as unexplained um even after stringent analysis so 700 reports were deemed and you know they didn't know so that's kind of interesting right uh, the UFO reports were archived and are available under the Freedom of Information Act, but names and other personal information of all witnesses have been redacted. So I guess you can look into that. I I don't know if I have before, maybe, but that's interesting. I've known about Project Blue Book for quite a while. Um, that's kind of one of the first things you kind of learn about when you start getting into this sort of thing. And that's what this episode is kind of just about really i'm just introducing these some of these cases and ideas and project blue book i mean the government has looked into it they have taken this sort of thing seriously before um and really the quote-unquote conspiracy goes that they know more about it than they're leading on 
Um, perhaps they might have um, technology, some of the technology hidden for themselves. Maybe, maybe other countries have the technology. I mean, I don't know. I definitely think they know more than they're leading on to the public, and that's interesting to me. Now, um, what's the next one I wanted to... I'm doing this on my iPad, and I'm using my left hand, but I'm right-handed, so it's really fucking me up. Um, let's talk about the Zimbabwe case, if I can find it. Good lord. Oh, okay, here we go. This next one I want to talk about, 1994 Zimbabwe school sighting. This one is really interesting to me. Um, it always enamored me because there's a lot of footage of like testimony of like witnesses and these witnesses are children granted, but I think that's what makes it even more compelling. So let me break this down a little bit. Um, this happened in 1994 in Rua, Zimbabwe of all fucking places. Imagine Rua, Zimbabwe. Um, but these children at Ariel school, which I kind of find the name ironic, Ariel school, you know, and, like, UFOs fly through the air. Like, they're aerial. Aerial school. Okay, that's probably just a stupid thought. But uh, we're playing during <laughs> morning break. Oh, okay. The kids were playing during morning break when, allegedly, one large main silver craft and four other ones around it landed at the edge of the schoolyard. And all the kids ran down to the edge of the schoolyard, right, to go and see this. And the children claimed that along with the craft that they saw a being with large black eyes and this kind of big oval shaped head standing on top of the main craft. And some of these children actually claimed that they communicated with this being through, I guess the eye contact and, and their mind, they were getting messages being transmitted to their minds uh, specifically about the environment basically and what humanity is kind of doing to the planet and and just kind of all the destruction that humanity causes and i don't know if there was more to the um whatever they saw um now some of these kids were traumatized some of them were kind of inspired and enthralled by the experience um, now they recorded and filmed interviews of these kids, okay? And you can look them up on YouTube, just or Google Zimbabwe school sightings. Um, a Harvard professor of psychiatry, he was a Pulitzer Prize-winning author, and he was like this highly respected psychiatrist. He did interviews with the BBC and um, a South African producer who had already done his own short documentary on it, and he they both felt very compelled and they felt like this was a legitimate sighting that these kids had white what? the people's were white like that you saw white in the center yes like that mm -hmm. was he near the uh, the silver object or was he far no, on top on top of the silver yes. object okay and um did you look at him yes did he look at you? He didn't give me the creeps, then I stopped looking. Gave you the creeps. Actually, in your drawing, you showed him standing up, didn't you? Yes, I had to draw him standing up because I couldn't draw him sitting. <laughs> <laughs> what I thought was maybe the, the world's going to end. Maybe they're telling us the world's going to end. Um, 
Why do you think they might want us to be scared? Because um, we maybe because we never we don't look after the planet um, the area properly. And they have them like draw pictures of what they saw separately from each other, and they ask them different questions separate from each other, and the testimony all pretty much lined up like to a T, and um, it's interesting. I think it's interesting, and um, I think, and I don't know how true this is, I think I read this a while back, but some of these kids, a couple of the kids that had the experience had heard things in their mind they've gone on to work in the environmental field and they actually have dedicated their life to you know their profession kind of reflecting the experience that they had which gives a little more credence to it in my opinion i don't know how true that is though you'll kind of have to look into that for yourself um okay now this last one this is the last one I'm going to mention, the last substantial case, because I think, for me, it's the most substantial and the most interesting because it's actually the most recent mass sighting that there is. And let's keep in mind, this is this sighting that I'm about to talk about happened in 1997, and it's titled The Phoenix Lights. Um, if you know anything about UFOs, you've probably heard of it. If you don't, it was a series of UFO sightings over the skies of Arizona, Nevada, and even stretched into Mexico, Sonora, Mexico. Sonora, which is the name of my girlfriend. Shout out Sonora. But uh, this happened on March 13th, 1997. Now, um, the reason this one is like so significant to me is because if it happened now, it would it would be completely different because everybody, this was a very large mass sighting, okay? Thousands of people witnessed this, and I can only imagine now in the age of fucking TikTok and smartphones and, you know, high-definition video, like, what it would do to the world uh, to see something like this on a mass scale like like that. But um, there's, there's a documentary on Amazon. It's titled The Phoenix Lights Beyond Top Secret. Um, I've seen it like two or three times it's got loads of great testimony um and i would definitely encourage you to check it out um it's on amazon it used to be on amazon prime but i think you have to pay for it now which is fucking horseshit but because fuck amazon right even though i still buy from them but uh okay so this is from wikipedia i'm gonna read the wikipedia wikipedia's version of events okay it seems fairly accurate it's wikipedia i know so take it with a grain of salt but between 7 30 p.m and 10 30 p.m in a space of about 300 miles from the nevada line through phoenix to the edge of tucson thousands of people called in reporting a giant v-shaped craft containing five swirling spherical lights hovering silently hovering silently through the sky for 106 minutes. Now, in the documentary, they talk to witnesses, people who saw this giant V-shaped craft. And when I say giant, and when they say giant, I mean, they describe it as fucking giant. Like, this thing was apparently as big as, or if not bigger than an aircraft carrier, flying, floating, levitating above their head, not making any noise, just silently, just 
flying over their heads. Okay, now pilots, police officers, doctors, I mean, just all sorts of different kinds of people, reliable people, um, called in and reported seeing this. And this happened for 106 minutes. Now, the second event, there was a second little event that happened after this, and um, it happened around 10 o'clock at night. Um, it, it's kind of been more, it was the one that was more thoroughly covered by the media because there were actually was some video taken of it. Um, but it kind of stole the spotlight from the craft that just hovered over everyone's fucking head. Um, now it, it was also observed by a lot of people who thought that they were seeing the same lights that they saw earlier coming underneath the V-shaped craft. Now, the United States Air Force came out and spoke about these lights that appeared the second time around, and they identified them as flares that were dropped by an A-10 Warthog aircraft that were on training air, training exercises at the Barry Goldwater Range in southwest Arizona. People did not buy that. I do not buy that. Um, you can look at the footage on YouTube of this second group of lights. It's not great quality. It's very pixelated. And that's how it was back then, you know. People grabbed their camcorders, and camcorders were shitty quality back then. But if if this happened now, imagine. I mean, just imagine. It's it's hard to believe like something like this could happen. And you know, and, and this event was swept under the rug, which is what I'm about to get into. And this is going to lead into some of the politics and kind of where we're at now with this whole situation. But F Fife Symington the third. That's this fucker's name. Fife Symington III. Very regal sounding name. But he was the Arizona governor at the time. And um, he held a press conference uh, a couple weeks after it happened, right? Because people were kind of spooked. At least that's what this documentary said. You know, people were kind of spooked. They were kind of like wanting answers, reaching out to local city government and, you know, the governor and just wanting wanting answers you know um but two weeks later um i guess it was around two weeks weeks later um five simington held a press conference stating that they found who they actually found who was responsible for the aircraft that was flying over everyone's head and this i guess he was like an aide or something and he came out dressed in like one of those bright green kind of or i think it was bright green it was like a stereotypical little gray alien green alien costume and it was like an inflatable and you know ho 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 the whole fucking room just abrupts and laughter and you know plays along and acts like you know it was fucking nothing and that's how he played that off um and it was just swept under the rug people didn't talk about it anymore um, and that's pretty much, that's exactly what fucking happened. Um, the end. Now, exactly 10 years later, Governor Simington did an interview with Dateline NBC. And he said that he did, in fact, actually see the craft that day, the big V one. And he said, quote, I'm a pilot and I know just about every machine that flies. It was bigger than anything that I've ever seen. It remains a great mystery. Other people saw it. Responsible people. I don't know why anyone would ridicule it. It was enormous and inexplicable. I mean, that's a lot of fucking nerve of him to say, I don't know why anyone would ridicule it. Uh, kind of like the way he fucking ridiculed it. 
you know, dickhead. How big? Bigger than anything I've ever seen in the sky. Like an aircraft carrier in the yeah, sky? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something like that, yeah. And it, and it was hard to define because of the light in terms of the size, but it, but it was absolutely silent and had sort of eerie embedded lights. And, you know, so that's what I saw. And I wasn't expecting to see anything because I was looking out over at Luke uh, right. to the west. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, these people in the park uh, area on the, just on the west side of 51, there were a bunch of people there. Everybody said, oh, look at that. And we turned around, and this thing was coming from the northwest, traveling to the southeast. Um, Symington also noted that he requested information from the commander of Luke Air Force Base. Um, he also reached out to the general of the National Guard and the head of the Department of Public Safety. And none of these officials that he contacted, allegedly, were able to give him any information or an answer. Now, this lady named Frances Barwood, I'm just going to mention her real quick. She's in the Amazon documentary. She worked for the local government. I cannot remember her title or what she did exactly, but she did have her own investigation into the event with the city government. And she interviewed over 700 eyewitnesses. And she also said that of those 700 eyewitnesses that she interviewed and took down their testimony of what they saw, not a single federal government agency or government agent ever interviewed any of these people, ever. Which... I find odd. I find odd. Now, <laughs> Fife Symington, I didn't even mean to like go down a whole rabbit hole on him, but, you know, considering what he did, it's pretty shitty, right? For, you know, to have this huge mass UFO sighting and then to just make light of it and to make fun of all these people that saw something crazy and just wanted some sort of explanation. He couldn't give it to him, so he just fucking trolled him, I guess. Uh, but let me talk about him a little bit because he actually is a very corrupt politician and corrupt politicians and UFOs, I mean, they just go hand in hand together, right? So in June of 1996, 1996, um, he was indicted on 21 federal counts of extortion. Um, he was making false financial statements and committing bank fraud. He was also charged with defrauding his lenders as a commercial real estate developer, extorting a pension fund, and perjuring himself in a bankruptcy hearing. So <laughs> it's not a good look for Mr. Regal Fife Symington. Um, then in 1997, he resigned from office following the charges of extortion and bank fraud, a conviction that was later overturned thanks to a presidential pardon by Mr. Bill Clinton. Uh, shout out Bill Clinton. Thanks for that, Mr. Bill. He also claimed debts of more than $24 million caused by the collapse of his real estate investments. So that's a little bit about his um, <laughs> corrupt nature. Now, Symington, um, he has talked about UFOs since a little bit. He acted as a moderator for a UFO press conference at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. I don't know what year this was, but um, there were other speakers that included U.S. and foreign military eyewitnesses and public officials that were involved in various different UFO cases, saying that the phenomenon was actually quite real that it should be taken seriously, and they urged the United States government actually to reopen its public UFO investigations, which 
they kind of did, right, in 2021. Here in 2021, there was the Pentagon UFO report, which was still basically no help and not really good information. I think there were like six pages, not including the appendix and title page. They didn't have like a single explanation. They talked about uh, flight safety a little bit and national security, but no no definitive answers on that front. I mean, go figure. I mean, the government is not going to tell us about this shit. They haven't for they haven't since uh, Roswell, right? I mean, Roswell is such a great <laughs> it's such a great first story because it's such a blatant it appears to be such a blatant cover up, right? Roswell does and that, and that just sets the sets the stage for the rest you know I mean the his, the government has a history of or it appears to me the government has a history of covering these sorts of things up now I mentioned five Symington's uh corruptness and politicianness because we're about to get into another kind of arguably corrupt uh suspicious politician that goes by the name of John Podesta. I don't know if you've heard about him, um, but he was Hillary Clinton's campaign manager and the top advisor to Obama and Bill Clinton. Okay, so he's worked with the Democrats for a really long time. He's very high-ranking in the political um, uh, hierarchy, I guess. Um, very well-connected. And I'm going to talk about him quite a bit because he's actually been the kind of more vocal voice within the government about these sorts of things. And if you don't remember, during the whole WikiLeaks thing in 2016, his emails were hacked um, along with Hillary Clinton's. And there was a lot of um, information in there. Um, Certain things I probably won't get into right now here, but... Um, of these things was actually UFOs and talk of UFOs. So we're going to talk about that um, in just a bit. But let me talk about John Podesta just a little. Um, in 2016 of April, he said, um, quote, the U.S. government could do a much better job in answering the quite legitimate questions that people have about what's going on with the unidentified aerial phenomena." Um, and while serving in the Obama administration, he tweeted, quote, Finally, my biggest failure of 2014, once again not securing the disclosure of the UFO files. Hashtag, the truth is out there. So he's been outspoken about this sort of thing. He's, he, you know, you'd almost think like he believes in it, and he definitely thinks there's something to it in the way he kind of goes about talking about it so openly. Um, now, Hillary Clinton also has an interest in aliens, believe it or not. In 1995, there's a picture of her. She was photographed with um, the billionaire philanthropist Lawrence S. Rockefeller, um, and she was holding a book that was titled, quote, Are We Alone? Philosophical Implications of the Discovery of Extraterrestrial Life uh, by Paul Davies. Um, And that picture's out there. You can look at it. She is holding that book. Um, she's been quoted as saying about Area 51, I think we may have been visited already, but we don't know for sure. Um, and that Podesta has made me personally pledge that we are going to get the information out one way or another. (laughs) She also said, maybe we could have like a task force to go to Area 51, which just makes me think of that whole storm Area 51 thing that happened 
back in September of 2019 where, you know, seven people were arrested so much for storming Area 51, right? <laughs> um, then on Jimmy Kimmel, Bill Clinton talked about Area 51 a little bit. He said, quote, There are no aliens there, but everyone who works there has to stop about an hour away to put on special clothing, and that's where stealth technology is made, which... Well, I think I mentioned earlier, but I'm going to be doing an episode on um, like Lockheed Martin and Skunk Works and a lot of that stealth technology. I will tell you, I think that the stealth technology that they have out there, it is definitely alien in nature. I mean, it just has to be. I don't know. I feel like it just has to be. Now, Podesta um, also gave a foreword uh, for this 2010 book. That It was one of the first books I actually read that really got me into this sort of thing, but it was titled, quote, UFOs, Generals, Pilots, and Government Officials Go on the Record. Um, and it was written by this investigative journalist. Um, her name is Leslie Keene. If you're into UFOs, you've probably heard her name before. She's pretty pretty popular for this sort of thing. Um and John Podesta was also uh, a big X-Files fanatic, which I thought was funny. I also like X-Files. I don't know if I'm a fanatic, but he was a fanatic, apparently, and he had a fan club for the show in the Clinton White House. Um, quote, he said, quote, the, in an email he sent out, um, he said, quote, the X-Files fan club would like to invite you and Mulder to lunch at the White House. Don't let the boss know. Um, and in 1999, he had an X-Files-themed 50th birthday party that both of the Clintons attended. And if you don't know anything about the X-Files, it's very much about conspiracy theories and aliens and the government hiding things. Like, it's kind of sus when a member of government, like, loves the X-Files, right? Like... The X-Files is not a good look for the government, you know? I mean, not really. Um, now, the next person that I'm going to talk about, and John Podesta kind of ties into this next person, um, but this next person is actually Tom DeLong. Now, if you don't know who Tom DeLong is, he was the lead singer and the lead guitar player for... Blink-182, they were like a punk pop band that were kind of big in the early 2000s, late 90s. Um, they had a couple... They were pretty good. I like Blink-182, old Blink-182, but um, Tom DeLonge is um, actually really into UFOs and aliens, and he's also... Um, he also adorns a lot of his shit... Um, his guitars and stuff with like Masonic emblems and Freemasonry. So he's, he's, I think he's probably pretty knowledgeable on the occult. I would think, or I would hope if you're going to plaster that shit all over your fucking equipment, then you better be able to back it up a little bit. But um, the first I heard of his interests and in all this stuff was actually this book that he wrote um, called Secret Machines. And he wrote this with a couple people. He wrote it with A.J. Hartley, who was um, like this successful fiction novelist. Um, he mostly wrote like young adult fantasy. Um, he wrote some like academic books on Shakespeare. 
and some like mystery thrillers. But um, the other person he wrote the book with is Peter Lavenda, who I'm actually familiar with because he focuses mostly on occult history, on the occult and occult history. And he's best known for a book called Unholy Alliance, which is basically about like esoteric Hitlerism and like Nazi occultism. Um, which, you know, the Nazis, they were definitely on some occult shit. Um, he also wrote a book called Stairway to Heaven, Chinese Alchemist, Jewish Kabbalists, and the Art of Spiritual Transformation. Um, he wrote a book called The Dark Lord, H.P. Lovecraft, Kenneth Grant, and the Typhonian Tradition and Magic. So he's very much in tune with the occult nature of reality and the alchemical transformation that's kind of going on in the world, I think. So all these people, they've kind of got to be a part of it, right? They've got to be all involved in this thing in some capacity. Now, Tom DeLong showed up in the WikiLeaks emails talking to John Podesta about UFO disclosure. UFO disclosure. Um, so let me go ahead and read the first email here. He says, quote, Things are moving with the project. The novels, films, and nonfiction works are blooming and finishing. Just had a preliminary meeting with Spielberg's chief operating officer at DreamWorks. More meetings are now on the books. I would like to bring two very important people out to meet you in D.C. I think you will find them very interesting as they were principal leadership relating to our sensitive topic. Both were in charge of most fragile divisions as it relates to classified science and DOD topics. Other words, these are A-level officials, worth our time and as well the investment to bring all the way out to you. I just need two hours from you just looking to have a casual and private conversation in person. So that was the first email that Tom DeLong sent to John Podesta. Um, and what's he talking about there? You know, things are moving with the project, novels, films, nonfiction works. I'm going to get into that in just a second. Um, now, in the second email, he was talking about this guy named General McCasland. And he says, quote, he is very, very aware as he was in charge of all the stuff. When Roswell crashed, they shipped it to the laboratory at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. General McCaslin was in charge of that exact laboratory up to a couple years ago. He not only knows what I'm trying to achieve, he helped assemble my advisory team. He is a very important man. Best Tom DeLong. Now, I'm going to get into this advisory team that he's mentioning here. And, and all this, the, the novels, films, non-fiction works that he was talking about are all a part of this thing that Tom DeLong created and went live with in 2017. And it's called To the Stars Academy of Arts and Science. Okay? Now, uh, let me read Tom DeLong's quote. Um, this is what he describes it as. Quote, a consortium of scientists, aerospace engineers, and creatives that will work collectively to allow gifted researchers the freedom to explore exotic science and technologies with the infrastructure and resources to rapidly transition to innovative ideas and world-changing products and services. The public interest in the outer edges of science and the understanding of phenomena has always been suffocated by mainstream ideology and bureaucratic constraints, says company president and CEO Tom DeLong. So Tom DeLong is now the CEO of this thing called To The Stars Academy. All right. This is in 2017 that he announced this. 
first of all, Tom DeLonge, I mean, this dude was in Blink-182. I mean, what the fuck is he even talking about? Why is he the CEO of this consortium of scientists and aerospace engineers? Like, what, what, does, what does he know about anything? You know? Fuck Tom DeLonge. I'm sorry, but fuck him. Now, his little advisory team that he has, it is pretty impressive and sus at the same time. So let me, um, this guy's name is not sus at all, James Semivan. James Semivan is the vice president and co-founder of To The Stars. He was a consultant to the U.S. government on national security matters, and he recently retired from the senior intelligence service from the CIA. So he's a CIA member, which would probably explain why his last name is Semivan, I would guess. <laughs> and this next guy, he was also has a weird name, Steve Justice. That sounds like a, a superhero name or something. Steve Justice. He is director. He was program director for Lockheed Martin. Like I said, Lockheed Martin. Lockheed Martin's advanced development program, better known as Skunk Works. So this guy was head of fucking Skunk Works, dude. They've got some alien shit going on at Skunk Works, I guarantee it. And I'm going to talk about that on another episode. Um, and then Luis Elizondo, director of global security and special programs. He worked for the Department of Defense, the National Counterintelligence or he was a national counterintelligence executive, and he was the director of national intelligence. So, I mean, you got to give it to Tom DeLonge. He does have quite the fucking assembly team here, but too bad they all work for the government and are super suspicious. I mean, I don't trust the CIA. I don't trust the people at Skunk Works or Lockheed. Like, these are the people that are hiding the information, not giving it to us. Give me, give me a break, right? Like, they've been secret about this sort of thing, and then they're going to use Tom DeLong to, like, make it all cool and hip to the kids? I mean, what, what, what is going on? What are, what are they doing with that shit? I, I don't get it. Um, now, The Vault. The Vault. Um, Luis Elizondo, the global security guy, he's involved with this thing called The Vault. Okay, and it's called the Virtual Analytics UAP Learning Tool, and it's a public-facing database of UFO sightings. So the Vault team collects, analyzes, and provides their authentication of UFO sightings, most famously reported in the media as having been obtained through declassified government materials. And this is about those three videos that were taken during the USS Nimitz UFO incident and the USS Theodore Roosevelt UFO incidents um, that were publicly confirmed by the U.S. Navy in September of 2019 as authentic videos taken by Navy pilots. Now, if you're into this sort of thing, I guarantee... And you don't even really have to be sort of into this thing to like have seen these videos. The mainstream media was like... They've plastered these videos all over the place. I mean, just do a few Google searches about um, Navy UFO sightings and you'll see them. The videos are there. And Luis Elizondo and To The Stars Academy, this whole vault program, that's where this shit came from. That's where these videos came from, okay? Just to let you know. Now, the videos were part of a campaign by this former intelligence officer, Luis Elizondo, um, and at the time, he was associated with To The Stars. He said he wanted to shed light on the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identifi Identification Program 
a secretive Department of Defense operation to analyze reported UFO sightings. Um, And in April of 2020, the same footage released by the company was also declassified and officially released by the Navy. So all this shit that was coming out of there was legit. It was legit. The Navy said it was. So it's legit, right? Um, So that's kind of like where we're at now with it. I just kind of plowed through that, didn't I? Um, that's kind of where we're at with now. I mean, so 2020, I have something here in 2020. Um, in April, 2020, the same footage released by the company. Oh, that's what I just read. I think so that's where we're at. These Navy videos have been released and we're kind of like the government appears on the surface to be taking UFOs a little bit more seriously. I think I just read an article today, actually. It's November 10th, by the way. Um, but um, I just read an article um, not too long ago. I think they're trying to get more serious about this sort of thing in government and um, Congress. You know, they're wanting to like take the UFO thing more seriously. But this whole thing feels very fishy to me, the way that they've kind of um, put this information out there where we're at now with it. I don't trust Tom DeLong. I don't trust To The Stars. I don't trust these Navy pilots. I think a couple of them were on Joe Rogan. And I found their stories and their testimony to be questionable. Um, I know you're not supposed to question those kinds of people, but I did find their testimony questionable. Okay, now I'm going to mention one last thing, and then I'm going to let you guys go. Um, speaking of weird WikiLeaks, there were emails sent to John Podesta from astronaut Edgar Mitchell. And if you don't know who Edgar Mitchell is, he was the sixth man to walk on the moon. He's an astronaut. And he writes, um, he wrote Dear, or not Dear John, that's the email. I'm reading the page, whatever. Um, he wrote John Podesta talking about straight up talking about extraterrestrial intelligence, zero point energy. He mentions the Vatican. Um, So let me read this first email to you. It's very strange. Dear John, as 2015 unfolds, I understand you are leaving the administration in February. It is urgent that we agree on a date and time to meet to discuss disclosure and zero point energy at your earliest available after your departure. My Catholic colleague, Terry Mansfield, will be there, too, to bring us up to date on the Vatican's awareness of extraterrestrial intelligence. Another colleague is working on a new space treaty citing involvement with Russia and China. However, with Russia's extreme interference in Ukraine, I believe we must pursue another route for peace in space and zero-point energy on Earth. I met with President Obama's Honolulu childhood friend, U.S. Ambassador, Pamela Hamamoto on July 4th at the U.S. mission in Geneva when I was able to tell her briefly about Zero Point Energy. I believe we can enlist her as a confidant and resource in our presentation for President Obama. I appreciate Aaron's assistance in working with Terry to set up our meeting. So that's a pretty crazy email to get from a fucking astronaut, right? He's literally talking about Zero Point Energy and ETI. Now, if you don't know what Zero Point Energy is, that is something that I'm going to get into more 
on the whole Lockheed Martin Skunk Works um, episode because Zero Point Energy ties into... I mean, it's it's like levitation shit, right? It's like free energy. It's this type of energy that Nikola Tesla wrote about. And um, I, I, I'm not going to get into it right now, but there is a lot to talk about there. And... Um, you know, this is great, actually. Let me read the second email because this ties into the next episode I think I'm going to be doing. So, Dear John, because the war in space race is heating up, I felt you should be aware of several factors as you and I schedule our Skype talk. Remember, our nonviolent ETI from the contingent universe are helping us bring zero-point energy to Earth. They will not tolerate any forms of military violence on Earth or in space. The following information in italics was shared with me by my colleague Carol Rosen, who worked closely for several years with Warner Von Braun before his death. Carol and I have worked on the Treaty of the on the Prevention of the Placement of Weapons in Outer Space, attached for your convenience. We're arguably closer than ever to war in space. Most satellites orbiting Earth belong to the U.S., China, and Russia, and recent tests of anti-satellite weapons don't exactly ease the scare factor. It sounds like science fiction, but the potential for real-life Star Wars is real enough. It's just not new. Fears of battles in space go back to the Cold War and several initiatives, like President Reagan's Star Wars missile defense system. Deputy Defense Secretary Robert Work spoke to Congress in June about the threat. He said during a speech, the technology the U.S. developed during the Cold War allows it, quote, to project more power, more precisely, more swiftly, at less cost. Take a moment to think about everything satellites do. GPS, surveillance, and communications all depend on them. And the Scientific American notes you can disable satellites without missiles. Simply spray-painting lenses or breaking antennas is enough. President Obama requested $5 billion for space defense in the 2016 fiscal budget, and a former Air Force officer told the Scientific American, most of the United States' capabilities in space have been declassified to send a clear message. There are no rules for war in space. Best regards, Edgar D. Mitchell, Apollo 14 astronaut, six man to walk on the moon, and zero-point energy consultant. The fact that there's a zero-point energy consultant emailing, like, John Podesta, that's pretty crazy, man. That's pretty wild. So, I'm going to leave it there um, on the next episode. We'll, we'll dig in more to this whole zero-point energy Lockheed Martin and Skunk Works and all that shit. We're going to get into that a lot more. Um, so hopefully you enjoyed this um, episode uh, talking about aliens and UFOs a little bit. Um, I'll probably give you more on my personal opinion later on as we go on this journey together. But uh, Thanks for listening and I hope you tune in next time. Check out uh, the Instagram, Plainsight Podcast. 